You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. First, um, started going to church. We went to a big church called Granger, and uh, it's 10,000 people, and uh, it was out in the middle of South Bend, Indiana, on Grape Road, right next to the Dollar Movie Theater. So uh, we would take, you know, the same route every time. And with a big church, you got to make sure to get there early because the police cars are going to, like, guide you out to, like, left field before you get to church. And um, so one of, the, one of the roads that we would always pass on Grape Road was this road that went out in front of Holiday Inn. And for whatever reason at Holiday Inn, there was this guy from the time I started going there to the time that I left that I just called anti-kids, anti-family. Uh, because he, uh, he had over, apparently, 10 or 20 years... Um, had created uh, this little pathway up and down the grass on Holiday Inn Express with this little picket sign that basically read, Holiday Inn is anti-kids and anti-family. And every Sunday morning, he'd get his little picket sign out, and he'd just walk and pace back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, apparently doing his uh, due diligence uh, for the right of justice in uh, South Bend, Indiana, by just creating a path of picketing right in front of the thing, like wearing down the grass, you know. As a 16-year-old kid, I'm going to church and, you know, hearing about forgiveness or whatever and, and watching this, and I'm just thinking, what in the world? Like, I just wish I could do a 60 minutes interview and just ask this guy, what in the world happened to you that for 10 years you need to be picketing out inside a Holiday Inn Express talking about it's anti-kids and anti-family? Still don't know. Never interviewed a guy. Don't know the answer to that question. Still a mystery. Um, I met another guy um, at church, you know, um, uh, when, when, when you're in church, you're with all sorts of people, and you end up in, you know, little icebreaker questions like this, and I remember sitting next to a guy at lunch, and uh, we were talking about his family, just kind of a little icebreaker, just get to know you, and the guy goes, yeah, I have, uh, I have two brothers, but I don't talk to the other one. I was like, oh, you don't talk to the other brother? He's like, yeah, I don't talk to him. How long are you going to talk to him? Well, I haven't talked to him for like 20 years, and I'm expecting there's supposed to be like, you know, a cheating thing or like a, you know, an affair or some like dastardly thing that this guy did, and I said, well, what did the guy do? And he said, well, this one time, I saved up in my job, and I bought a $15,000 jet ski, and I brought it out to the lake, and then my brother crashed it. And I was like waiting for the end of the sentence. He's like, I was like, is there anything else? And he's like, nope, that's it. And he's like, you haven't talked to him for 20 years? He's like, exactly, I haven't talked to him in 20 years. I hope he gets what was coming to him. And I was like, yeesh, you know, it's rough, you know. But I've come to understand, you know, going from 16 to now 38 years, 38 years old, uh, is that it's, it's a whole lot easier to tell somebody to let it go when you don't have to hold it. Uh, when, you, when you get older and you really see that everybody's pain uh, is relative to yours and everybody experiences pain and trauma in different ways, um, you know, oftentimes the person you feel sorry for the most is not the person that is the, the villain in the story, it's the victim, because they're the one that has to hold the grudge for 20 years, walking their sign up and down the lawn for whatever reason they, they're doing it. At least they feel justified in their own right. Uh, I, was, I was watching a, a really moving TED Talk this week about forgiveness, and the girl opens up and says, you know, I'm writing this drama about... Uh, uh, these, uh, these, these murderers, and uh, I try to tell everybody that it's just about art, but really, uh, it's a testimony in my life. She says, um, she says that when she was about uh, 20 years old, um, one of her brother's friends uh, snuck into their house and killed the brother. Uh, the mom had kind of like taken him in and like wanted him to feel seen, and so um, he was after money and freaked out and shot the brother on the couch. And when he got home, he realized... Um, that uh, he had left his jacket in the living room. So he rushed back into the living room, and the mom, according to the testimony, just wouldn't stop screaming. So in order to cover his tracks, shot the mom, and then to cover those tracks, shot the dad. And is now serving back-to-back sentences, you know, in Texas um, with, in solitary confinement. And so, um, and so, 
So it's always easier to say let it go when you're not the one that has to hold it. It's interesting, this lady's testimony, and I think many of us in this room, depending on how small or big the grudge could be, know that uh, saying you forgive somebody is a lot harder than doing it. Like, she told the news when they interviewed her that she forgave, forgave the guy that killed the, killed the parents, and she even wrote it in her journal, and she told all of her friends, but saying forgiveness is much different than doing it. And she compared forgiveness to kind of this shiny five-star Amazon review or like the Nike of spiritual life, just do it. You know, everybody's promoting it, and everybody seems like they know how to do it, and it seems like it's a really great thing to do, but nobody can give you an actual five-step process to how you actually forgive somebody. And, uh, and so, despite the fact that forgiveness is vague, the impact of unforgiveness is not vague. Uh, unforgiveness uh, is not, you know, oftentimes I think the metaphor, even in this passage, is, is, is the metaphor of a prison. I, I've reflected on it a lot this week and to, to say that it's more than a prison that could live outside you. It's actually a poison that lives inside you and affects everything else. So for unforgiveness, it isn't just a prison, it's a poison. And it, and it can lock a past up, so much so that it's not just that I had a bad incident in my childhood, but I had a bad childhood. That wasn't just the college that I went to, you know, where I met that one bully friendship. That was the place where I was abused, and the whole entire past gets put into that prison. The present and all of the strength that could be used for creativity and new relationships and, and dreaming and, and everything else, well, that gets locked up too, because that energy is being used and focused towards dealing with and processing the past. And then all of a sudden, it's not just that guy, but it's all guys. It's not just that girl, but it's all women. It's not just that race, but it's all of that race. It's not just that authority figure. It's all of authority that robs us of our past and our present and our future. So as elusive as forgiveness and unforgiveness is, the effects of it and the impact of it are very tangible, very, very tangible. So I want you to notice something about this uh, prayer that we've been looking through in Matthew chapter 6, and I think it's, it's pretty poignant in considering the topic, okay? So this is where we are, finding, finding your place in prayer. Prayer is not just talking to God, it's talking with him, and it's not just talking, it's walking. It's, you look at the list, and none of these things are a check in with me on Monday for uh, a week-by-week -week thing. It's a day-by-day -day process. And, and so here are the topics, right? So we just review uh, verse 9. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And then verse 12, the zinger. And forgive us our debts as we forgive the debts of others. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then here's 14. Don't miss the, the closer. Verse 14. He just gets done talking with prayer. And the first thing on Jesus' mind is this, verse 14. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Did you catch what I said? Like, he, he lists off a bunch of stuff that you should be... Like, prayer is not just talking, it's walking with God. It's living every subject in front of him. And out of the six, seven, eight verses that he's talking about, it seems that the subject that he wants to linger in his closing remarks is not the bread, the deliverance, or the temptation. It is the forgiveness. This is the takeaway, right? Verse 15, but if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. So if you look at the big scope and zoom out, the opening subject line is God is a father. Most of our problems in, in spirituality and life is not just that we don't know what is right and to walk rightly. It is that uh, we walk rightly in a way on the outside that we are not on the inside. And so if you want to know something about prayer, then get to know your father, okay? But by verse 12, by the middle of it, and then by the end, what he seems to be closing on, but if you want to know something about your neighbor, learn how to forgive him. 
The whole prayer is built up on two stems, the praise and the petition. And the opening line is all about loving God. The greatest commandment in, in all of the Old Testament and New Testament is this, to love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the second commandment is like, this, is like the first, which is to love your neighbor. So it's as though Jesus is saying with this prayer, if you want to learn how to love God, you've got to know him as Father. And if you have any chance at loving your neighbor or yourself, you've got to learn how to forgive. This is the heartbeat. This is the actual crux of what it means to do life with God and life with neighbor. And so we have this really clarifying parable, which is my point, what I'm going to work on, work through today, or we're going to walk through today. And, and, and I think it helps us to understand, uh, first, uh, what forgiveness is, but also, in a very important way, what forgiveness is not. What forgiveness is not. And, and, and so what you have in this parable, just the outline is, you have, first and foremost, the, the, the premise of the, of the parable is an unpayable debt. I believe that this passage is talking about that the root of forgiveness is understanding that we are forgiven. That the best that psychology can offer you is either, it's really two options, is either one, if you are in a place where you have been, um, had unpayable debts harmed towards you, you either have option one, you either have to minimize the sin, say that it didn't matter and tolerate and excuse it and just kind of cover it up over it, or you have to maximize the cost. What most counselors and even Christian pop, you know, therapy will tell you that the way you forgive is you calculate the cost it's going to cost you and then do a cost-benefit analysis and decide that the wisest thing to do is lay down the cost of that burden so you can walk in freedom. And so the two things that, that life can offer us without the cross is to minimize the sin or maximize the cost, but what this parable is telling us is that the true root of forgiveness is to maximize the cross. It's to magnify the cross. That, that the only way that we can practice forgiveness is, is not to make their sin small, but to make his cross big. And the process of forgiveness has to do with the eyes in that way. And so the, 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 the dual possibility of, of where I can go from when I'm the point when somebody sins against me is either towards the unforgiveness of, of, or the prison of unforgiveness or the prayer of forgiveness. Those are the only two, two things. And so let me just say this before crossing over here into the passage. I think, if anything, we could just say this. That if Jesus is telling us that we want the kingdom to come, if we want the kingdom to come and his will to be done, the way that John spoke about a couple weeks ago, if we really are about that, we shouldn't pray for more church buildings. We shouldn't pray for a better church budget. We shouldn't pray for better cars. We shouldn't, you know, first and foremost, even pray for physical healings. The first thing we should be praying about, according to Jesus, is forgiveness. If you want a church that has power in it, then pray for forgiveness. Because the real reason why there isn't power and there isn't unity in a church is because there isn't forgiveness. And people have their past and their present and probably their future locked up in the poison of unforgiveness, and there's no power in unforgiveness. So if you really want a city to thrive, if you really want a city to see revival, then pray for forgiveness. That's the root. The root of the problem is always forgiveness is what he's saying. If you want a church, you know, if you, if you want your heart to walk, if you want to walk in the kind of intimacy, you know, that Jesus talks about, it's like the prayer is saying it's not that he's absent, it's that we're absent, and it's because we are spending all of our time that we could have been drawing into the heart of, of God that is welcoming us with his open arms, dealing with the prison of the person that we're trying to hold captive in unforgiveness. And as we do not experience unforgiveness laterally, we struggle to experience uh, forgiveness vertically. And so if there's one thing on your prayer request, what do we should be praying about? Pray for forgiveness, is what he's saying. Okay, so here's the, here's the setup. Verse 21, Matthew 18. Peter comes to Jesus. He asks him, Lord... How many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? This comes right after. You guys know what Matthew 18 is? That whole, like, go and talk to your brother and work it out with two or three. And then, you know, 
So you get through those verses, and Peter's like, jeez, how many times do we have to do this, Lord? Like, how many, you, conflict, or interpersonal conflict? I'm over it. Can we go to the conference now? I'm done with interpersonal conflict. Like, he's like, can we get around the messiness? He's like, let me do what I usually do, which is answer your question with a riddle, right? So he says, Jesus answers, and I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you how many times, seven times 77, or he says 77 times, which is a little wink and a nod, Bible students, you guys read Genesis 4, when Cain kills Abel, Cain goes out and starts city. You know what his great, 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 you know, Lamech, his little great-grandson, has a little poem, you know what he says? Well, Cain killed one person, he got forgiveness, I killed another person in 77 times, and now I have 77 times, you know, the uh, forgiveness on me. So what he's saying is that uh, when, when, when God creates a garden, when God creates creation, he creates harmony and peace, but when man creates a garden, he creates vengeance. And so he's like, Peter, it's not about the number of people that you're counting, it's about the way you count. You need to count differently. It's not about doing something better, Peter. It's about seeing something clearer. So here we go. He gives them the parable. Those that have eyes can see is what he says about parables. Verse 23, therefore, the kingdom of heaven, it's like a king. He goes out and he settles accounts with his servants and he began the settlement. And a man who owes him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Pause, not the main point. God is an account settler. He's not an account ignorer. Every action that has happened down here, every thought and every action down here is counted. They're all counted. Forgiveness is not just, oh, I washed it over and I felt good and did a Zen meditation. Forgiveness is a debt paid. So God is a God of righteous justice, and he keeps accounts. He keeps accounts. Everything is counted. Every cry and plea for justice is all counted. Nothing is unseen by the Lord. Verse 24, so he begins the settlement, little court case, and a man who owes him 10,000 bags of gold... I can't think of another number higher in the Bible. Like, he's always going for these audacious things. 10,000 bags of gold. Like, one bag is a talent, and it's apparently worth, like, 20 years of labor. So if you multiply it, it's worth 200,000 years of my work, okay? 200,000 years of my work. It's just an audacious, what as they say, like, the best preacher's a storyteller. Jesus knows how to tell some stories. Like, he starts it out, he's like, here's a guy who's about 200,000 years worth of work, right? So he starts the story off, we're hooked. Verse 25, and he's not able to pay it. <laughs> And, uh, and he says, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sell your wife and your children. You know, it's funny about unforgiveness, how it travels down through generations. And, and all that you have, and, and we're going to sell it to repay your debt, because you, on your own, can't pay your debt. Verse 26, at this, the servant falls on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begs. He goes, I will pay back everything I owe. You know a dude that somebody's like, hey, man, listen, come over here. You owe me, I'm like a loan shark, you owe me a billion dollars. He's like, tell you what, Mac, I'm gonna get you back on Tuesday. It's like, this guy is not, he's not counting his debts very well, right? I will pay back everything you owe. Okay, we have a, a gap in the, in the, in the narrative uh, structure. So verse 27, the servant's master took pity on him and cancels the debt. So this is what Jesus says, you know, the kingdom of heaven is, is not a shiny new toy. The kingdom of heaven is, is, is not just all this, you know, in this parable, is not all these miraculous things happening that we can judge the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is what he's saying, at least in terms of this parable, is a debt, an unpayable debt that is being paid. The kingdom of heaven, is, this is, I can't have to read it in plain sight with the clear meaning of the text. The kingdom of heaven is a debt that is being paid. Like, I'd like to stand up here and tell you, guys, guess what? The home thing is going to be great. You're going to find a home. You're going to get a home. You're going to get a home. Interest rates are way down. It's like, I could, I, could, I could tell you that, right? I could tell you that, oh, and by the way, you know, the national debt is not only in the zillions. No, it's down to the billions. And even yesterday, it's down to the millions. And the national debt is declining. It's not increasing. 
I could tell you that, but it wouldn't be true, right? I could sit here and tell you that the inflation rates are better than ever. And whatever we're doing in the economy, we should keep on doing it because the inflation rates are just killing it right now and gas prices are not going through the roof, right? But if I, if I say it, and whether it's true, it's two separate things. And I think what God, what Jesus must be getting at here is if you, that God keeps records of debts. And if you were to pile up and balloon all the debts and put them in one place, we have a grand total of an unpayable debt over all of our lives. An unpayable debt. So you might have been following the news. In 2000, and, uh, I think it's 15, there was a shooting of um, what we've been calling uh, the Emmanuel Nine. Uh, there was a, a church in Charleston where there was a group of uh, del- elders and deacons and a couple of key church members that were meeting in Charleston. And a kid named Dylan Roof, a, a self-proclaimed white supremacist, comes in and he shoots every single person in that Bible study um, dead. It has no remorse for it. it. has a website about it, about why he's doing you know, justice to service and so forth. And Dylan Roof comes in there and, and kills um, all these people. And so it's like a few days afterwards, um, the, the, the daughter of one of the deacons um, that served at that church got up in front of the news and, uh, and gave this really, really powerful speech. I don't know if you remember it. Her name is Nadine Collier. And this is what Nadine says. Her mother was killed. This is a few days after her mother died. She comes before uh, the public there on the news and says, I forgive you. I want everybody to know that. And this is important. I, I really do think that this, this voice gives us some vision for what forgiveness looks like. He's, she says, you took something very precious away from me. She counts the cost. She doesn't just shove it under the rug or try to minimize it or diminish it. You took it away from me, and it can't come back to me. And I'll never talk to her ever again. That's the cost. That's the debt. She's owed that. She's now owed that. She is owed her mother back, but it will never happen. She will not get what she's owed. I will never get uh, to talk to her again. I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you. So forgiveness, whatever forgiveness is, it is not silence. Forgiveness is not tolerance or exclusion of sin. Yeah, excusing sin, but it is something different. I forgive you, have mercy on your soul, you hurt me, you hurt a lot of people, but God forgives you, and I forgive you. And so what we're seeing on that is, is, is I think, akin to what this passage is talking about, which is Nadine has, been, has, has uh, been given a debt that is unpayable. Like if Dylan, uh, if Dylan tomorrow, or Dylan Roof, gets executed... That's not going to give the mom back. That's not going to give it back. If the public opinion all sides with her and vindicates her and uh, cries for justice for the oppressed, the public opinion is not going to give the mom back. That debt is not paid back by the public opinion. That debt is not paid back by a sentence. That that, That debt will not be paid back by gun reform. It can't be paid back. That thing is taken, and it can't be given back. And so, so at the crux of this parable, what what is being said here is not just for Dylan and not just for this man. But really for Peter and for all of us, you and I, in the grand terms, some total of things, we could say inflation's down, but we have unpayable debts to God. We have unpayable debts to God. This is the idea. Like I, I'm, uh, I used to, used to be um, a teacher. And so uh, there's not a day that goes by that I'm positive that I'm, while I'm watching what goes on in every given public classroom with you know, 30 kids running around, that there isn't like, like forever indelible character moments happening in that classroom where one student is harassing or antagonizing another student and causing pain for that student, that that, student, that second student's going to remember for the rest of their life. Like, that's, there's not a day that goes by that. And then, as I reflect on it, 
being 26 and 27 and 28, sometimes knowing what to do and not doing it, sometimes not knowing what to do out of ignorance, there's not a day that went by that I wasn't guilty of culpability by not handling that situation, being the one in charge. I can tell you as a father, there's not a day that goes by that there isn't deep, meaningful, helpful, and hurtful things that are going on at my dinner table and in my living room. Sometimes because of my, uh, because I don't have the authority or, or the, the uh, ability to change things, and sometimes because of my passivity, that, that there is unpayable debts that are happening in my, in my classroom. There is unpayable debts that are happening all the time in this church. There's ways that I'm falling short as a pastor, as your pastor. You only have one pastor, right, at this church. And if, and if I'm not a prayerful pastor, if I don't image Jesus to you, if I fall short of the calling that I'm supposed to be doing, I owe you a debt that cannot be paid back. I, you can't get another pastor for 2020. It's over. You can't get another pastor for 2021. You can't get another pastor for 2022. Those debts are all incurred, and they're not going anywhere. And so here's the deal. I can preach as many sermons as I can and help as many people as I can and feed as many people as I can, but I can't pay back my debt. I will always, in the margin, in the great analysis, in the margin of my life, have unpayable debts that are paid by Jesus. And there's nothing that I can do to change that. And any number of things that I'm doing or trying or being or, 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 or protesting about when, when, a, when a gun shooting goes off in, in the middle of national news, none of that will abdicate me from the responsibility of my unpayable debt. And so that is the sobering and humbling and I believe powerful root of what forgiveness looks like. The kingdom of God, says Jesus to Peter, is an unpayable debt paid by Jesus. And when push comes to shove, when somebody takes something from me that they can never return to me, that will be tested. That is being tested. That is the moment where that thing is being brought to bear. Because if I'm a person that has paid my own debts, I will go this way. But if I'm a person that has unpayable debts that can never pay back 200,000 years worth of work, can never pay it back. I necessarily will act differently because of it. So then he tests next. He tests the root of forgiveness, and then he tests the root of unforgiveness in verse 28. So what happens is this servant who is forgiven of the debt, whose debt is paid, doesn't understand how it's paid. This servant has actually received forgiveness without actually experiencing it. He has forgiveness without even knowing the cost. This is the possibility is what he's saying for a person in faith. And so verse 28 happens, when the servant goes out, his misunderstanding of the debt services that have been incurred causes him to act this way. He finds one of his fellow servants who owes him 100 silver coins. He grabbed him and chokes him. This is what unforgiveness does. It chokes people for things they can't give you. Choking this guy for something that he cannot pay him back. Pay back what you owe me, he says. He demands it. Verse 29 the fellow servant falls to his knees much in parallel and in, and in uh, repetition of what he did just verses ago, falls to his knees in the exact same way that he fell to his knees a moment ago and says the same quote that he said a moment ago, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Verse 30, he refuses and instead goes off and he has the man thrown in the very place that he can't earn his debt back, right? Throws him in prison, chokes him for the thing he can't have and puts him in the place where he can't get what he needs. Puts him in the prison. They were both outraged, and uh, the other servants were outraged and told the master everything that had happened. So in the first chunk of the passage, I think we're getting at the root of forgiveness. In the second chunk, I think we're getting at the root of unforgiveness. The servant chokes the guy for what he can't give him, puts him in the prison so he can't earn back what he needs to give him. And then, I think what is most important here, the servant actually, in trying to punish the guy, tries to be the master. I think that is the root. I think the root of forgiveness is realizing that I have an unpayable debt that's been paid by Jesus. And I think the, unfor 
the root of unforgiveness is actually in my pain, allowing my servanthood to become a master over someone else and punish them. So let's zoom out for a second. This is what forgiveness must not be. According to Matthew 18, when it says if a brother or sister sins against you, you should go to the person. You shouldn't talk about the person. You shouldn't go out in the parking lot and go, you know, gossip about them. You shouldn't, like, write a blog about them without putting their name in it, right? You, shouldn't, you should go and talk to the person. And the purpose of talking to the person, again, and it's just a, a sleight of hand because who really knows the real motive and intent and what's the, what's the objective, but the purpose of talking to the person should not be to win the argument but to win the brother. You guys remember this in Matthew 18? To keep it as small as possible for as long as possible. And the goal is reconciliation, not punishment. Not punishment. It is reconciliation, not punishment. So you go to one, and one can turn into two and two into three, but the goal is to keep it as small as possible. Gossip is what I'm telling people that can't help the situation. But if the person can help the reconciliation for the good of unity, it could go into the circle and into a larger group, and then we're treating them like an unbeliever, which means you actually love them more than you love unbelievers, right? It's the idea. But the point is that Matthew 18 has a scope, and it has a sequence. But here's what Matthew 18 must not be saying. Matthew 18 must not be saying that Christianity is being a doormat. Being a good Christian does not mean to grin and smile and say that abuse is okay because Jesus loves you. Abuse is not okay. It is never okay. Toxic relationships are not okay, and they're never okay. They're not a good out of church. They're not good inside of church. And so what forgiveness is not is not calling a spade, you know, calling a spade a spade is, is completely Christian. It is not Christian to, you know, make excuses and cover over and just allow, well, brother, we believe in, pre- you know, in the grace and not the law, so preachers can go ahead and just, like, sleep with everybody and then just get back up again nine months later because they punch. No, you can't do that. Leadership is a privilege, you know? Leadership is a privilege. It's a privilege, right? And so what it does not mean Forgiveness does not mean that there's no consequences. Dylan Roof should be in prison because that is the consequence of the action. That is nothing about his, his altar towards God, but it does say something about his actions and consequences, and, and actions have their consequences. Forgiveness does not mean reconciliation. Any experience you've ever had, if you've ever had reconciliation, it's a sweet taste of heaven. I believe that is what the essence of heaven is really about, but you can't, you can't call something heaven if it's not heaven. That's just as much taking God's name in vain as calling something that is, you know, heaven, not heaven, heaven, and not heaven, heaven, or whatever. I mix myself up, right? But the point is, the point is, is it takes two to reconcile. You can forgive somebody and never be in the same room with them ever again. You can, be in the, you, can, you can forgive somebody and never be in the room. That's why Jesus says you need to forgive them in your heart, okay? So these are three things that forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not toleration. Forgiveness is not excuse. Forgiveness is not, not you know, uh, erasing consequences. Forgiveness is not reconciling necessarily, Okay? It is, this is what the lady in the TED Talk said. She had to literally write a letter to the guy, and she says, this is what you took from me. Remember when Dean said, you hurt me, right? This is what she said. I will not get to walk down the aisle with my dad. You took that from me. A lot of times we equate Christianity with niceness and think that, think that anything that's, that has the emotion of anger in it must be a sin. Ephesians says to be angry. It says to be angry because angry, anger helps you identify the cost, and you can't forgive something you don't know the cost of. You can't forgive a debt you don't know the amount of. She says, my kids will never get to understand the parts of me that come from my parents because they will never meet my parents. You can't give that back to me. She named it. I will never feel a sense of uh, actual belonging and safety probably ever, she says, belonging and safety when I walk into rooms anymore. And that's probably a natural response to having your brother and your mother and your sister killed in cold blood. And you can't give it back to me. And so she therefore says, I'm not looking for me, for me anymore. But here's the trick. Here's what, here's what it is. Here's what it isn't. 
is not talking about it, right? Forgiveness is talking about it to the right people for the sake of winning. But here's, here's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is, forgiveness is first and foremost talking to the master. Pay attention to this. Verse 30, listen to this. But he refused to allow the guy's debts to be canceled, despite his own debts being canceled. Instead, he goes off. He has the man thrown in prison to pay the debt. Now look what happens in verse 31. There's another group of servants. Did you know you have options? You have options, you have opportunities. Like you can't control what comes towards you, but you can control how you respond. Right? That's adulthood 101. There it is. Like you can't control what happens to you, but you can control what you do. And here's some other options. The other servants saw what happened. Look what it says. They were ticked. They weren't just ticked about what happened between servant one and two, but between servant two back to servant one, right? They're ticked about it, and look where they go. They go and tell the master. And what do we know from the rest of the story? The master punished the first servant, but what did they do to the second servants? He listened to them. You know what, the, you know what forgiveness is not? is not not talking about it, right? But what forgiveness is, is talking to the master. It's being a servant, talking to the master. So, 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 the, so the, the, the template that uh, Nadine lays out for us, I think is completely astute. Number one, she says, you hurt me. Being a Christian does not mean you don't hurt anymore. Number two, and what you did is not okay. These two things are not optional. Now, here's the option. The option is from here is to punish or to pray. That's the option, is talking to the master because what is being said here in verse 31 is that the master hears it all and he takes care of it all. What does Romans 12 say? That you should... Love your enemy because love heaps burning coals on people. In other words, the best thing you can do for justice is pray for somebody else, to pray for somebody else. And so this is, I think, is the alternative route of the root of forgiveness in the middle of the root of unforgiveness is to speak with your heavenly father that he takes care of everything. This is the, this is the truth that as, as you come before Jesus. Truth number one is that it, if there's anything that they owe you, you've owed way more to God. That's the prayer point. This is what this is coming to tell us. It's setting us free from the prison and poison of unforgiveness. And, and, and statement, and truth number one is, when I come before the altar of God and talk to my heavenly Father, not in public, that anything they owe me, I owe him more. Okay? Number two, this is just smart, common, plain sense. This is just smart, common, plain sense. That everything that's taken from me, he can give me back and more. That's the promise of Job. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to look for Nadine, and I don't know how it's going to look for you. But he will give back everything taken from you, where everything sad will become untrue at the end of time. Everything will be made right, and everything taken from you will be given back. Forgiveness is, a, is, is not a feeling. It's, it's an act of faith. One, I owe more than they owe me. Two, everything taken will be given back. Three, everything wrong will be made right. He sees it all, and anything that I've spoken to him, when I come to the edge of my control... And I, and I refuse the vain, unrighteous, and really unproductive use of gossiping and punishment and slandering and all those other types of things. When I, when I forego that and choose forgiveness, not only do I avoid the prison of unforgiveness, but I step into the prayer of intimacy. There's something powerful that happens. So here's the, here's the collateral. Here's what happens in verse 32. When the master calls in the servant, he says, you wicked servant, I canceled all of your debts because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. 200,000 years of labor to this guy. Verse 35, this is how my heavenly father will treat you unless you forgive your brothers or sisters from your heart. 
I think the reason why this is such a harsh parable at the end of it is because he knows the stakes are so high. The stakes of forgiveness or unforgiveness affect not only your past, your present, your future, but your children and your children's children. And it literally is a zero-sum game. It could mean, on the one hand, isolation and pride and, and prejudice and anger and resentment and bitterness, or on the other hand, a deep, comforting intimacy with Jesus. Have you ever walked on the other side of conflict with a brother or sister and gotten into a category of a relationship that's not, I've only done good towards you, and it's built on our good common rapport, no debts included, and you've walked across the line of conflict and resolution and tasted the intimacy of what happens when debts have been paid inside a relationship, when you actually experience me showing you my debt and you not using that debt to punish us, but to bring us before the Father. Have you ever experienced that before? This is a zero-sum game where literally the, 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 the fork in the road can lead us down these two paths towards prison or towards prayer. And I think that what Jesus is telling us is that although we, we will never ultimately lose our forgiveness from God, you know, uh, positionally, we can lose the experience of that, the feeling of it, or the, 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 the sense of forgiveness based on how much we imprison those, those around us. And so there's the choice. I think, that, I think that ultimately what forgiveness is, you know, culture will tell us that forgiveness is either minimizing the sin or it's maximizing the cost, doing the debt analysis, and realizing it's not worth it. But I think what forgiveness is really offering us in this prayer, the reason why forgiveness is in the middle of the prayer and really at the end of the prayer, summarizing the whole thing, is that forgiveness is really where the kingdom lives. It's an opportunity not to minimize sin or say what's wrong is right or right is wrong, but it's to say that the cross is bigger that the cross is wider, that the cross is deeper in defining all of our relationships, good, bad, or indifferent. And so these are the three things you might take a look at on the screen. But this is the truth of the cross. Like if you really count it, count the debts the way that Jesus is counting the debts. It's not just seven times, it's seven times 77 because of this. One, anything that anyone has ever owed you is not more than what you owe God. The, the, the horizontal sin that I do to my neighbor is never greater than the vertical sin that I've done against the holy God. And every person that crosses my path will test whether I believe that or not. Because everyone's going to say the right answer in Sunday school. But not everyone's going to say the right answer to their spouse. So this is the moment that your, your belief in what you've been forgiven of is really tested. Do you have unpayable debts paid by Jesus? And is there anything you're doing on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday that's paying back that debt <laughs> doing any damage to it whatsoever. Because forgiveness is, not, is, is, the, is the actual fact on Calvary that anything that I've done or someone else has done to me can never outweigh what I've done to him. Number two, that anything that's taken of me, anything that's taken of me is given back by him. I can choke that friend or that mom or that dad or that spouse for as long as I want. And I can maybe correct their behavior sometimes and modifications but I can't get back what I want, can I? You know that revenge and vengeance can't get it back. And so this is where the, where the cross offers us what our enemy can't. The cross offers us everything. What does Ephesians say? You know, heights and depths and forgiveness and atonement and the family and connection. Like all the things that we'd ever really want can't be found in that prison cell anyways. Can't be found from our enemy anyways. And everything that has been wrong is being made right. And so if I think we were <clears throat> to take this prayer to heart, I just have three intentional questions um, and Ashley will come up in a moment to kind of lead us in a more direct prayer. But you might take this home, you know, in your journal. And you might try it on a small grudge, or you might try it on a big one. And just see how big the cross is. 
and see how, how wide the love of God is and how big the grace of God is as you would magnify it in your heart. But these are the three questions that I want you to consider as you pray. Literally pray that prayer. Father, forgive me as I forgive others. It's a, it's a prayer that's done in conjunction, conjunction vertically and horizontally all at once. Forgive me as I forgive others. The first question to evaluate would be this. What is owed to you? You can't forgive it if you don't know what, what it was. You can't forgive a debt you don't know how much it was. What is the debt? What will you not get back? You've got to call it. You've got to name it. You can't just sweep it under the rug under good tidings. What is owed to you? And then measure that against what you owe to him. What has been taken from you? Is it a childhood? Is it an education? Is it a future? Is it a career? I mean, what did they really take from you? Not what did they take from them or to your mom or to your, your uncle or your kids. What did they take from you? Because that's the only thing that you can forgive. And what is it that is on the table? Because whatever it is that they've taken from you is not as good as what he wants to give you. It is not as good as what he wants to give you. And lastly, what was done wrong? Naming that wrong and what is being made right in our midst because the kingdom of coming, kingdom of come, is coming. I think that the kingdom of God is here and it's now and uh, it's oftentimes missed. It looks like a mustard seed. It's something that is not shiny. It's a little bit more painful and a little bit more messy. But according to Jesus, the heart of the kingdom prayer is forgiveness. And if we want to see uh, forgiveness, or if we want to see the kingdom come, if we really mean that prayer, like we want to see the nations, we want to see revival, we want to see the gospel make their way, then I think he would say, start with forgiveness. I think he would say, forgive others as you've been forgiven. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.